Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very, very good morning. So delightful, isn't it? Because we've now got rid of the ridiculous COVID restrictions. Richard Tice, live in the studio, uh, looking very handsome, I have to say. And I'm rivaling you today uh, with the extra makeup that's been provided for me. Uh, by some very good friends of mine from... Uh, good morning, Mark. I, I mean, I have to say, I feel, you know, I feel I've been completely outdone. I wasn't offered any makeup. And you, <laughs> you I don't mean, need it. <laughs> you, are, you are looking outstanding. It's a whole new vision. In know, I'm, I'm a bit worried that I upset Julia Hartley Brewer because my makeup was better than hers. She was apparently scared, thought I looked a bit creepy. She did look a little bit anxious she as did, she left I mean, the studio. I've never seen her leaving the studio so quickly in my life. But there we are, you know. Happily, she's uh, happily so, married. Is this a daily new thing or is this well, just I don't a, know. a once great, a week The great thing about working for Talk Radio is you never know what's going to happen tomorrow and that's one of the things we like about it you know we are the sort of pirate radio station of the airwaves well the thing you'll have to to discover is the joys of taking the makeup off well this is a big problem actually because on the a few occasions i've ever done television you know i always forget to take it exactly and then it's complete carnage later and then you wake up in the morning and you have no idea what's going on you're kind of like there's a pillow covered in makeup you know so you think there's been a car crash on the yeah but they've even i mean they've even put stuff in my eyes to make them whiter which is really quite strange. Yeah, maybe that's just to cover up the night before. Well, that, there is that. I was out in Mayfair last night, I have to say. Incredible. Uh, I found a couple of great new bars in Barclay Square. Uh, lots of people out and about. Couldn't get into Sexy Fish because there were too many people there. Um, so, yeah, life is beginning to return definitely. to normal. No, I, think. I mean, I've, I've definitely noticed that, mm. that, you know, central London is busier, which is great. But, you know, you look around, there's still there's, there's empty shops everywhere. Oh, for sure. Uh, for sure. And, you know, that's going to continue. Empty offices everywhere. Mm. But it, definitely more people are, are coming back. And also, back you can always tell as well, because, you know, and I'm sorry to, 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 to bore people with my, you know, nightlife. But, you know, you can always get a cab now, which you never used to be able to get. You know, you come out of a restaurant at midnight. Normally, you're going, where are all the cabs? But uh, there was loads of them, so it was fine. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I talked to a lot of the, the cabbies, and, and they are getting a, a bit more trade, but it is still absolutely mm. bleak. And, and it's not surprising when you've got all this complete yo-yo mm. of government policy. I mean, this, this, this press conference yesterday... Oh, my God. Um, I, I actually can't watch them anymore no. uh, when Hancock's on because I will start to throw too many things at the telly. But we have to ourselves, ask ourselves a fundamental question. What was the point of yesterday's press conference well that's a very good question i don't know because i was listening to it um at home uh, just just on talk radio i wasn't actually watching it and before um the the useless slides began which appeared to show that basically there wasn't any covid anywhere at all uh, of any kind 
I thought, has Matt Hancock turned into a sort of salesman? Because all he seems to be talking about was, you know, we've, 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 got, we've given away this many vaccines, we've given loads of vaccines away to uh, countries overseas, vaccine this, vaccine that. You'd think he was running I, Pfizer. I wasn't clear whether he was selling vaccines or whether actually he was selling sort of some form of old armoury from a museum. He was talking about shields of this and swords of yeah. that. Um, you know, all of a sudden you're going to get bazookas. In yeah, there, no I mean, it's now kind of vanity project for these guys, isn't it? Uh, completely. I, look, he just views this as an opportunity, uh, you know, f- to be on the big stage once again. He had nothing to say. It's interesting, isn't it? Every time there's some there's some good news out there, all mm. of a sudden they're talking about, you know, the variants and, yeah. this and, and you know, that we should be really worried that uh, the vaccines won't won't deal with the new variant. And you just wonder, well, why are they continuing mm. To scare people when actually every single time it turns out that actually the vac- that they're not more transmissible or, or hardly at all, and that the vaccines are uh, dealing with the uh, with the variants, and surely leadership is about actually giving some confidence and to say we've got confidence in our vaccines, we're confident that they will deal with these mm. variants, and where they don't, we'll tweak them, we'll right. adjust them because that's normal. That's what happens with flu vaccines. You know when the flu tweaks and and adapts, uh, adjusts every year. Yeah. That, that's how it works. And I just think that the government, instead of constantly scaring people with this sort of fear mm. and propaganda, actually, let's let's build some confidence and self-belief yeah. in ourselves again, because it's a big job. I can tell you, walking the streets and the, you know, the high streets uh, around the suburbs of London during the recent election campaign, you know, people are really afraid. Oh, they are. And, and I actually know people who were quite happy to come out of their kind of homes and get back to normal last weekend. But suddenly this talk of the Indian variant, they were going, well, oh, actually, we're not really sure. And, and, you know, I don't blame them for that. I mean, I'm not one of those people. I don't give a, a monkeys, really. I'll just go out there and do whatever I've always done. Um, but lots of people are still worried that this could and, be a problem. And, and, and it's really hard to know what to do, because on the one hand, you get... Uh, the government new travel guidance. We've got this sort of wonderful traffic yeah, light, and it's, it's going to go from from red to amber to green, and people get very excited. Then you discover that actually uh, the green list is is most of the countries on the green list you've either never heard right. of or it's so far away. Yeah, I'm looking forward through. to my <clears throat> weekend in the Ascension Islands. Yeah, or, or the Sam- South Sandwich Islands. I mean, you know, <laughs> where's that for heaven's sake? Right. But then then we're told actually, well, the whole list is completely irrelevant because basically we don't want you to go anywhere. Yeah. So right. you have to ask yourselves. Um, does the left hand know what the right hand mm. is doing? Or is this part of this deliberate attempt to one day we'll excite people, then we'll terrify people, mm. then we'll concern people, then we'll excite them? I mean, it's actually just not good it really isn't. for people's mental health. And it's not what leadership is all about. And so we, we have on the, on the front page of the Daily Mail um, where it looks like it's, un- quite, it's, it's unclear which police we're talking about. Mm. But um, there are going to be the holiday police, the holiday police. Well, I would actually rather that the police just focus on um, doing what we employ them to do, which is to prevent crime and catch criminals. Not what you mean, not shouting free Palestine every five minutes. Well, there we are. I mean, that's another. I mean, what's that about? Right. Here's here's a situation where the police, the Metropolitan Police have got a video that we've all seen. Yep. Uh, They're still investigating that video because they're not quite sure what to do. It's pretty obvious what you do, don't you? You just suspend the woman, don't you, and say, look, we don't want to fire you, but you cannot go out on a street march uh, and and show that you are in favour of whatever it is that they're marching for. No, it's completely unacceptable. You know, when when the police are on duty, you know, they have to behave in a consistent, impartial way. And look, we all make mistakes. And uh, that police officer, you know, has made a mistake. And it's, it shouldn't be rocket science, you know, to, to have that discussion, which is a normal sort mm. of boss-employee right. relationship, and say, look, learn from the mistake right. and move on. Don't ever do it again, even. 
Yeah, don't do it again. You know, but but you know this stuff. I, I really do get worried though. Where you know we've got the threat of the holiday police arriving on your doorstep, and again, it's just this constant sense of fear mm. and anxiety. You know, people, lots of people. Sure, lots of people want to staycation here in the UK, and that's fantastic. Lots of people want to get away, and all of a sudden, you're saying, "So I'm going to go away. Uh, I'm going to come back. I'm going to do everything that's right." And then at some time in the day or night, and it could well be the night, mm. judging on previous recent track record, I'm going to get a knock on the door. And I don't know whether that's a, <clears throat> whether that's a criminal or whether it's a copper checking or not, checking up whether I'm a criminal uh, because I am or I'm not in the house. Right. I mean, it's just... It, it, also, it'll be one of those things, again, which is illegal yesterday, but actually it's fine tomorrow. You know, like I was saying, uh, I was talking to Chris Evans the other day about masks in schools. You know, his his boy went back to school on Monday. He said he felt a bit weird because he wasn't wearing a mask. And I said, yeah, isn't it funny how it was dangerous on Friday, but on Monday it's fine. You don't yeah. have to wear it on Monday because everything's changed. Well, nothing's changed. And on the one, you know, it's great that uh, children no longer have to wear masks in schools, whether it's the corridors, the classrooms, anywhere. But I was saddened on Tuesday morning to see children had become so used to mm. it that it was just natural to have masks on. So yeah. they were walking to school with masks on. That's what we've done. We have literally terrified our children. And the long-term implications of that, you know, the ability of children mm. to take a thing called risk. Yeah. You know, and actually that's that's going to be reduced and that will have long-term implications. And then it, it's bad enough um, putting, you know, bags and rags on, on children's faces but of course, we now hear there's more chat about vaccinating yeah, children. Right, and yet another kind of line that the government said it wouldn't cross. Uh, of all the lines that they that they said they wouldn't cross, now we're at this one. I mean, it's become it's become tragically laughable because whenever a senior cabinet minister says something, whether it's on the media or indeed in the House of mm. Commons, take Matt Hancock. Yeah, last November. He said to the House of Commons, and remember, ministers are not supposed to lie and mm. mislead the House. He said, we're not looking at vaccinating children. Right. Here we are a few months later, and guess what? They're looking to vaccinate children. You know, the likes of Nadim Sahawi and Michael Gove and indeed the Prime yeah. Minister said, we're not looking at vaccine passports. They're not British. A few couple of months later, mm. sure enough, it turns out they've already handed out vaccine passport contracts. And you've got someone like the Minister Zidim, uh, Nadim Sahawi saying it would be irresponsible mm. not to seriously look at them. Yeah. And, and I just think we, we cannot trust a single word that no. uh, these ministers and cabinet ministers say now. And it's just so we, it's impossible to know what to do. Julia yesterday on her show uh, had the um, uh, one of the health ministers, I think it was, yes. who had no idea what the travel regulations were. Well, she changed government go, policy literally in the 10-minute li- li- conversation she had with Julie Hartley Brewer. I mean, you know, we all, we all know Julia is, is powerful, but we didn't <laughs> realise... She's very good. She's one of her finest moments. Yeah, it's like, is it illegal to go uh, onto an amber country? Yes. Is it? Oh, I thought it was just, um, you know, guidance. Oh, yeah, it is guidance. So it's not illegal then. You know, and it's ridiculous. And Boris yesterday in Prime Minister's Questions was clearly weak because he couldn't explain the policy, because the policy's mad. The policy doesn't make any sense. I mean, if I want to go to Spain, I can go to Spain. Nobody will stop me. Nobody will arrest me. Uh, when I come back, as long as I go into quarantine, you know, it's fine. So why on earth are they saying, don't do it? I, I, I really can't make it out. But unless actually there is this sort of perverse pleasure, the, the amount of control mm. that the government has now got over people's lives. Yeah. And... You know they're sort of playing with it, mm. and it's like that we're like puppets on a string. Yeah, and you know it's it's like the old um, <clears throat> what do you call it? Um, 
uh, it's gone. But uh, they're literally holding us like puppets. Yeah. And, you know, they're giving us good news one day, mm. bad news the next day. And we're just wondering... Can, can we exist keeping, like this? Is this an the awful new normal lot of people in, in a sort of state of, of mild panic and just coming up behind them and going, boo! I know. To see what you do. And, and it's, you know, th- this is not how mm. a great nation like the United Kingdom should be run, mm. should be managed, should be led. We want, we want confident, optimistic, upbeat. We're a great nation. We're, you know, we're, we're going to literally fly out of this crisis. Yeah. And, you know, we're really going to go for it. And you've got someone like Liz Truss really doing her best yes. to do trade deals. And, of course, they're complicated and complex and there's there's various interests. But, but you know, she is optimistically out there doing some stuff. And yet, in a sense, I feel that the rest of them are holding us back. Mm. And, uh, you know, that that's going to hold back our, our growth. Uh, it's going to hold back the, uh, you know, in more jobs coming up. Uh, and also, if you're in essential. business, if you're in business right now, and you're trying to either start something new, or you're thinking of bringing the the, the office workers back into into town, you can't really do anything unless you know for sure that these idiots are not going to suddenly reverse their policy and go, oh, that's it, no, sorry, you can't come back into town. We like you. I mean, it was last September. Do you remember when you and I used to speak about yep. this quite a lot? And we said we need to repopulate the offices. We need to get commercial property properly back to normal. And the government was also saying, get back to work. And that lasted about three days. And then suddenly it was like, no, 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 actually, sorry, sorry, didn't mean that. Don't come back to work. Stay home and uh, don't uh, infect anyone. And, and b- businesses and business people and entrepreneurs who are looking to invest money, we need to know that there is going to be a, a, a consistent trend uh, moving forwards. If, if you get a sort of yo-yo policy, then people just won't invest. Mm. They won't reopen the restaurants. Uh, they won't take on new staff. They won't invest in new equipment. Mm. And it'll just hold the nation back. We've got to use the success of the vaccine program and say, right, we've got a, a clear direction and we're going to go for it mm. and put the foot on the accelerator rather than than keeping us sort of just just down at heel. I yeah. think it's I think it's really damaging. I think it really is damaging and clearly mental health and, um, and the th- investment uh, yeah. scenario. And I think as every week goes on, more and more people are rebelling against it. And 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 if we get to June the twenty first and he doesn't do what he said he was going to do, Boris, I think it's going to be a big problem. Yes, and I, I don't know. I think it's probably still a fifty-fifty yeah. that we're, something will change. It's just it's just inevitable, and they will hold something back. But I, I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I hope on the twenty-first of June he says that's it. Everything's scrapped, you know, and and go and enjoy yourselves. Fill the stadiums, party like mad, mm. have a great summer, uh, and 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 let's let's get going again. Mm. And you know, I think that that's what we all hope. But I'm, I, I've got real. I mean, at real the moment, concerns, yeah. But no, if the Indian variant is as um, you know unusually mild as they're now saying, because even Boris is now saying, and even Neil Ferguson, old Professor Pantsdown, <laughs> is saying, you know, oh no, we actually we don't think it's that transmissible. They're going to have to come up with something else, or they have no other choice but to lift everything and get everybody back to normal. Because in fact, there is nothing actually to fear. As I say, Jonathan Van Tam yesterday was almost disappointed as he was unveiling his crappy slides, going, "Oh well, actually, look at all. They're all going that way." Hmm, you know, it was it, very exciting. It, it's that whole issue about is the glass half full or is it half empty? Yeah. And for the likes of you and I, <clears throat> excuse me, it's always half full. Mm. But throughout the whole of of the recent months. The, the whole government approach has been actually the glass is, is half empty mm. and we should be really fearful of this stuff. Where rather than saying there's no evidence that this is uh, that this is more dangerous, there's no evidence that it will evade the mm. success of the vaccines, 
but we'll, you know, obviously we'll follow the data. And if there is evidence emerging, then we'll let people know. That's a different way of leading, of governing, of giving confidence to the nation. And yeah. I just wish that was the way that the uh, the cabinet, the ministers and the prime yeah. minister. I mean, was the last the I heard, I think there were 15 people in hospital with COVID up in Bolton. You know, 15, one five. I mean, it's not very many people. Almost, you know. all, almost all of whom hadn't had the vaccine. Right. And, and that's their choice. Exactly. So, you know, we understand that. And, and that's a case of, frankly, it's a case of risk and reward. Yeah. Uh, if you take a chance, you, you, you make a, a, an informed assessment. Mm. And uh, if you're of a certain age uh, or you've got um, vulnerabilities or, or medical issues, then clearly you are dramatically reducing your risk if you get the vaccine. Mm. And if you don't, you've taken your chance. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine. But uh, this idea, I'll come back to it, <clears throat> of vaccinating children mm. absolutely terrifies me. Well, I won't let my children be vaccinated. Simple as that. You know, if they want to get to the age of 18, they then make a decision for yeah. themselves. And if they want to get a vaccination, they can do whatever they like, you know. But I, if I was, I mean, my, my, as I say, the, the, if my kids were under the age of 10, for example, I'd be like, no chance. What are you, what are you thinking? Why I mean, would you? Wh why would you? Wh why would you vaccinate children who are at almost no risk of suffering badly? <clears throat> It, well, it, in, when, when, in, when, well when, under 10, probably at no risk of actually even yeah, getting COVID. Fact, you know, when you look at the balance of risk, um, look, the vaccines are safe. But but in but every vaccine, there is a tiny, tiny risk. And it's the same with this, whether it's any other vaccine. Uh, but the, for, for children, the, the risk of having uh, a problem by taking the vaccine is probably equal, it's probably equal or, or greater or, yeah. than the risk of them suffering seriously from COVID. And, and you know, that's not being... That message, that calculation, that evaluation uh, is not being set out by the government, by the scientists, by the cabinet ministers. Mm. They're just saying we've got to vaccinate everybody. And I think it confirms our suspicion that actually this government is, is trying to get towards a zero yeah. COVID policy, which is... And again, they said they wouldn't vaccinate everybody. Again, another statement from Matt Hancock, which I think he made actually in something like January or February, that, you know, by the time we've, uh, we've vaccinated all vulnerable people, it's cry freedom time at yeah. Easter. And that's all gone by the wayside as well. Uh, the way to look at it is 30 to 40 people die every day, mm. sadly. Every death is, is, is sad. But, but across the whole year, 30 to 40 people die of flu. Mm. And we've always accepted that as the unfortunate price of living, the price of risk, the price of getting on. And, you know, many people take the flu vaccine, but many don't. But now we're down to, uh, you know, death numbers, really good numbers, mm. sort of mercifully low numbers yes. uh, in single figures most days now from COVID. So literally a quarter of the, the, the death numbers daily from flu. Mm. And yet the government is still trying to get it Ever lower. Obsessing and, about it, right? Obsessing I, was, about I mean, it. I got a statistic the other day. Uh, 175 people a week take their own life, 75% of whom are men under 45, and which is probably exacerbated by what we've been seeing over the past year. Yep. 175 a week, far more than a, a dying of COVID. But what are they doing about that? It, exactly. And I think surely the right responsible uh, way to lead the country is to say, look, there is a balance of risk in life. Uh, in my view, mm. uh, the biggest risk actually is never taking one. But if you don't want to take a risk, don't leave the bedroom. It's as simple yeah. as that. But the rest of us want to get on with our lives. Exactly. We understand the balance of also, risk. Also, by the way, it can be quite thrilling taking a risk. You know, oh. I'm going to advocate right now, go out and take a risk. Why don't you do it? What's wrong with you? I mean, you took a risk at putting makeup on. I, I mean, did. And, know, and, and, and so far, I think it's going quite well. So far, I think it's going what well. Do you think? It's not streaming off. <laughs>
I know, that's the other thing with the lights, right? Final question, Richard. Last time you were here, uh, you revealed that you and Lawrence Fox were looking yes. for a pub to buy. Uh, that particular clip went absolutely viral because all the Ramonas went nuts telling us all, there's no such thing as British food, bunch of fascists, bigots, you know, Nazis. It was, it was I mean, hysterical. I couldn't believe it. I was going, we're talking about pub. We're it, talking about somebody going to have a drink. Calm the hell down. It was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, they, they just went absolutely Incredible. nuts. And, you know, but no... It's all they've got now, though, arguing about how, how fish and chips isn't British. But, but you know, we have amazing food, amazing yeah. British restaurants, amazing British booze, whether it's alcoholic or non-alcoholic. Mm. You know, fantastic English champagne that I'm a great fan of. Yeah. Um, so much to celebrate. Look, I'll get the, the quick update on that is we are looking hard in central London. Yeah. Um, in a sense, I'm actually pleasantly surprised to see um, almost all pubs are reopening. Yeah. But we've really noticed that this mm. week. We've been pounding the streets. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're looking, but we haven't yet found uh, the right spot. Okay. And, and so I will... Uh, reappeal to your good listeners uh, if anyone knows anywhere that they th- think might be suitable uh, the fox and tice is out yeah, hunting excellent plan uh, richard tice great to see you again uh, of course we'll have much more to talk about but some some of the stuff that richard just said we need to discuss vaccinations for children i don't think that should happen vaccinations for everybody i don't think that should happen police to tell you when to go on holiday and whether you come back and you should stay indoors i don't want that to happen either the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio now, some of you might not remember the Martin Bashir interview with Princess Diana because it happened in 1995. It's emblazoned on my memory, not least because I was working in those days in Fleet Street. I was a night editor of the Daily Express and I was working on that very night that the Panorama interview went out. And I always remember um, that it started off with uh, a very short amount of time before we could send the first edition away. And the first edition uh, was sent away with the headline, I will not go quietly which was the first thing they said uh, as they trailed uh, the interview with Panorama. So 8 o'clock, bang, that's the first edition away. The second edition had this as a headline. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. (laughs) Boom. There were three of us in this marriage. An extraordinary interview, an incredible kind of piece of history. Uh, if you think about what Harry and Meghan are doing now, it was as nothing compared to what that interview did to the royal family. Let's talk now to Mark Bukowski because it's turned out uh, that Martin Bashir only got the interview because he managed to forge some documents, mislead the Princess of Wales, who was in a very vulnerable position at the time uh, and a pretty uh, fragile mental state. Um, and it turns out that he alone was entirely responsible uh, for misleading her down the garden path. Mark, a very good morning to you. Hi, Mike. I mean, this is quite a story, isn't it? And I know that some people will go, yeah, but we don't really remember it, so it's not that big of a deal. I think it's a massive deal for the BBC, this, isn't it? It's a massive headache for the BBC, and, and particularly some of the people who are involved with the production who have, who have, since, um, have since passed. You yeah. know, Steve, Steve Hewlett, you know, who was, was quite significant in that. I mean, there's an old uh, Soviet Russian expression that, that uh, I think we all need to hold dear, which is uh, history is, un- is unpredictable um, because we're seeing a lot of events that we evaluated back at the time mm. and thought and took them, you know, on on, on, on first uh, first look as something. And then as history has gone past, you know, there's a whole different perspective on it. And uh, look, Martin Bashir, I dealt with Martin Bashir. I mean, my own particular story was that when I was handling 
Michael Jackson. He was at ITV then. Um, I just of course, yeah, because he did Michael of... Jackson as well, didn't he? Yeah, he did. The, don't you remember the famous Michael Jackson interview, which I actually wouldn't I do. get anywhere near. I thought it was, you know, I thought after seeing what he did for Diana, I just thought it would just be, you know, sort of uh, <laughs> the, the most explosive thing. And uh, he was very, very seductive and very tenacious. I mm. think I'd only, it'd only been announced in, in a week that I got it. And he was sort of inviting me down to ITV and talking me through it all the time. And, yeah. and he, he, he came out with a letter. He showed me this letter. Um, which was from Princess Diana, and on it was, uh, you know, thanking him for the interview. Um, and he used this as a bit of a calling card sure. to sort of say, well, you know, if uh, if Princess Diana um, gave me the sort of full seal of approval, yes. you know, why wouldn't any other celebrity do it? So, and, I mean, in fairness to him, you know, why wouldn't she? Because it was a spectacular interview with her. It did sort of set the, uh, the hairs racing, and it was an incredible historic moment. But what she didn't know was that the reason she agreed to do it was based on a bunch of forged documents and a load of lies. Look, the tactics back in that day, Mike, you know, we could have an honest conversation about some of the tactics that sure. people use to get access are sometimes dubious. And as a publicist and as a PR man, you've got to have very wide open eyes and look at it. It's mm. a totally different world now, in a much better world, a much straighter world Is it though? in some ways. I mean, I, I, I probably. Well, you've got well, you've got well, we've got the element of social media. We've got the dissolution of the fourth estate going on, and we've, you know, we, we've we've got. It's it, 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 look, everything's different. Everything the same. It's still very tricky to navigate. Yes, yeah. there are different conditions, social media, whatever. There's greater scrutiny, um, but if a journalist was determined to get an interview, they would go it, mm. and they would be very, very persuasive to try and get that interview. Make all sorts of promises. Yeah. And you had to make a judgment on that. Forging documents and persuading your subject and going through, you know, a rigmarole to nail an interview and to frighten or to suggest the conditions were different from what they were is very serious. Yes. And it does cause problems for the BBC, um, both historically and currently, because these people believe that's what would need to be done to get to persuade me to do an interview. Yeah. Well, um, I was talking to Kevin O'Sullivan about this the other day, and I said, imagine if the News of the World or The Sun or the Daily Mail, uh, or in the days when it was still a decent newspaper, the Daily Express, had got involved in this kind of thing. You'd never have heard the end of it. You know, the people would be hounding, um, you know, the, the reporters in question. They'd be hounding the company. They'd probably try and get the newspapers shut down. And I think the BBC, maybe wrongly, um, it, it should be held to a different standard. You know, and if the BBC seeks to put itself out there as the ethical, you know, state broadcaster, this has damaged it, I would say, below the waterline. It's, it's, it's a nasty moment for it. I mean, it is 30 years ago or how many years ago it is. Um, they're having to make up for the sins of the past, like lots of many organisations are having to do at this time. Um, and we, you know, we've seen the effects of hacking. It, you know, it closed news of the world, you know, um, a great new newspaper of its ilk in its time. Um, so there, there are consequences for this. Mm. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who probably could have, um, you know, who would have been focused on it, as I said, are, not, are no longer here. Um, the guy who was forced, you know, who's persuaded to create these letters, you know, he hadn't worked for, for many years. Um, I think it's a difficult job for the director, for Tim Dave, director general, to deal with this. How do you deal with it? 
Um, are you are you throwing a light on current journalists who are doing a, probably a very straightforward and very good job in difficult times? How does this affect them? Um, and the BBC will probably overcompensate for this. I mean, we all know compliance in television now is a is a very um, you know hard act for some people to get over. There's a greater scrutiny on programs. There's a there's a new agenda for types of guests and broadcasters. You know on on the, who represents what the BBC thinks it should be as an institution. Now it has more you know pressures coming in from the streamers. Um, look at yourself here, talk radio, and in a sense, you know, taking audience possibly away from the BBC. So when you say when you say world. possibly, Mark, I'd have to say definitely. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. <laughs> it's definitely. Oh, also, Adam, Adam Bolton's <laughs> taking a bit of a caning as well. I have to say. Um, so <laughs> it's it's a strange world at the moment, a world of great change and flux. And whoever inherits the job has got a very difficult job to do because it's trying to navigate the future deal with the present and now have to deal with the sins of the past. You know, that is a real poison chalice. Yeah, absolutely right. And the, the thing is, I suppose, the way that they've dealt with it hasn't been great either. And that is the kind of the true test, if you like, of uh, an organisation that is in trouble or not in trouble. Because like a lot of things, you know, it's not necessarily one thing that gets you. It's the, it's the sort of collective of things that are coming after you. And the way that they sort of instituted an inquiry, the way that they then were going to do a special programme on Panorama, then they said, we aren't going to publish it. We're not going to bother putting it out. Then they saw the, the backlash and went, oh, maybe we'll show it to you later. You know, there's a stench of kind of um, of hiding something under the carpet, isn't there? I think it's something much more human than that. It's it's it, it, it's the enormity of the crisis, burying their head in the sands, hoping for the best, not really preparing necessarily. And I think it's down to the to to to, to the whole situation and and the experience of the people be able to deal with this. I mean, it seems to me the BBC are learning all the time mm. about these new conditions. And they're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. Um, but I think that these, it's, it's, it just inflates and keeps growing. It's like some sort of ginger beer plant you have in your granny's cupboard. Right. That he explains. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a lot of proverbial hitting the fan. Um, and I think the, the quality and the, uh, and, uh, of being able to make the right decisions in a fast-moving world driven by social media and everybody being able to comment, there's no space to think. There's no time to make the right reaction. And some of the mistakes that they do by rushing too quickly to make a statement or having to sort of douse down the flames on social media, particularly Twitter, yeah. you know, creates great problems later. I had a friend who was a pilot and, um, and he always used to sort of say that the smallest mistake in terms of what the pilot did and checking before he took off yeah. or a tiny screw not being in the right place. It, it leads to, you know, a catastrophe. Yeah. Sort of well, I mean, you know, you, go, you have to look at, look at the Concorde disaster in, in Paris, which was caused literally by a piece of junk on the runway, which lent, which lent, which lent itself to, to the end of Concorde. Yeah. You know, uh, that's so, I, I think I think in terms of in terms of crisis and, 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 and what people have to deal with now, it's a 24 seven, not spin of the media and the news cycle that we all grew up with, Mike. It's now also the minute by minute, you know, sort of um, Twitter cycle, mm. you know, social media cycle. Yes. And you've got to be 
incredibly tough and thick skinned just to look down that barrel and actually think very carefully of each move because each move you make is scrutinized. And it's true that this whole Bashir, you know, uh, situation has caused them so many problems. Problems they didn't want to have when they had enough on their plate. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Bashir was, you know, has been, you know, in really poor health. Um, and he hasn't been able to say anything. And above it, somewhere down the line, there's a lawyer with a lawsuit on a class action, which people have to always consider in, 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 in crisis. Exactly. But if you look at, say, Prince Andrew interview that Newsnight did, Emily Maitlis did, you know, they worked on that. Sam McAllister, one of the producers, worked on that for like a year uh, or more in order to get that to happen and to get it brought to air and to make what was a great piece of television. Um, and they didn't have to do what Bashir did. They just actually used good old-fashioned persuasive tactics. And I think Panorama and I think the BBC, you know, have a huge history of doing that. I mean, one bad apple in some ways, you know, has to be dealt with. It's a pretty bad apple, though. Yeah, it's a pretty bad apple, but there's also really good apples at the BBC. There's lots of good investment journalists. There's some great stuff as well. And I don't think we should forget that as well. We should forget that in this dark shadow that's been cast across it today. Yeah. I mean, what happens finally, Mark? I know you've got to run. If somebody at the BBC goes, actually, there's a lot more people that knew about this than we thought, that's going to be real problems for them, isn't it? Well, they're under scrutiny now. They're under pressure. Uh, they've instigated this um, th- this this commission. They've, they've they've looked into it. They've got to come clean. They've got to pull it all out. And you've got to cut your dirty, you know, uh, laundry mm. in in full glare of the public. Mm. And that's where it becomes very difficult. I don't believe they're an institution now that can bury anything. We know that that's impossible and important. So. Um, if there's more to come, I'm sure they'll have to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely right. Mark Bukowski, thank you very much indeed. Publicist, PR strategist, a man that knows a thing or two uh, about the business of the media. Um, but this is a massive problem for the BBC. The front page of The Sun, Bashir conned Diana, right, is what we're looking at today. And it looks as though um, he's got away with it, in a sense. They made him religious affairs correspondent, uh, which strikes me as something slightly odd. I wonder if they knew that he was a massive problem and that they knew uh, that this was that Dave was going to come home to roost and they knew that they would have to bury it all somewhere uh, in the forest. They haven't been able to do that. It's come back to haunt them. We shall see whether this will be yet more evidence that the BBC is a spent uh, operation, that they need to shut themselves down in many ways. They need to pare themselves down in many ways and they need to seriously take a look at what they do and how they do it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, some of you may have noticed that I look slightly different today, um, partly because I've been taken care of by two very, very clever women on the second floor today here at News UK Towers, where they've given me a makeup, a bit of a makeup makeover, if you like. I've put a tweet out saying uh, whether you like it or not. At the moment, I've asked for people to retweet it if they hate it, like it if they love it. And right now, you're loving it. Only 13 retweets, 442 likes. So the jury is not even out anymore. The jury's back and they think I look beautiful. What can I say? You know, who knew it could be done? Let's talk to Helen Dale, writer, lawyer and political commentator. Helen, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I was going to ask if you'd had a haircut at least. <laughs> no, I listen, I've, I've, I've literally been in a, sitting in a chair downstairs in a makeup room with loads of lights. I'm sure you've done this for television yourself. People yes. sort of, you know, p- pushing things into me, pulling things out of me, you know, do- <laughs> dosing down the hair with some, some, some water, some wax. I don't know what they've been doing, but this is the end result. And I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it, to be honest. It's TV makeup. It it's is. It's like TV makeup. You've got this smooth face yes. like people get on television. I mean, to be fair, I do have quite a smooth face anyway, largely because <laughs> it's quite round and full of flesh. Um, which is quite, I'm quite happy about because, you know, I don't have any wrinkles. People say, why don't you have any wrinkles? I'm like, it's because I'm quite fat, actually. That's the reason. So anyway, listen, true. you've got to be happy in your own skin is what I think. <laughs> anyway, listen, welcome back to the show. Um, obviously, you've got a piece of expertise that we would like to, uh, to, to, to dig de- deep down into today about Australia, specifically about Australian trade, specifically about Australian agriculture and Australian food, because I'm, I never believe these kind of Ramonas, uh, these types who say, oh, we don't want to be importing any food from there. I mean, we, we import loads of lamb from New Zealand. I mean, why can't we import it from Australia? Not as, not as much as you used to. Mm. Um, I mean... Quite a few independent republics ago, I did a talk about this book, uh, Britain and Europe in a, tr- uh, in a Troubled World by yes. Vernon Bogdanup. And he provided, I reviewed it for CapEx, and he provided a history of how the common agricultural policy developed in the EU yeah. and how the Britain was very different before 1973. And to cut a very long story short, basically it was always known that produce from Australia and New Zealand was more abundant, less expensive and of better quality than anything that could be produced in the European Union, particularly in your in your core areas, you know, your wheat, yeah. your barley, your fruit and vegetables, mm. those kind of things. And before 1973, what the UK did was maintain an arrangement whereby it purchased nearly all of its food from the Commonwealth and almost none from what became the European Union, then the EEC. And obviously British agriculture then, as British agriculture is now, was completely uncompetitive particularly with those three commonwealth countries we've now added a few more commonwealth countries to them that are very agriculturally productive south africa with respect to wine 
we've all had a, a good pinotage. Mm -hmm. And the West Indies, particularly Jamaica and Trinidad, with respect, like Australia, to fruit and vegetables, and particularly some of your distinctive fruit and vegetables like plantain, yeah. which people have this idea in their head is kind of like a big banana. Yeah. And it sort of is. But if you go to a Jamaican or Caribbean restaurant, you'll see that it's fried. Yeah. And the other thing is things like okra, which comes from both the West Indies and countries like Nigeria. Yes. So you know you've what, added you know a few countries. Do you know what I don't see enough of? And it's something I rather liked when I was there. It's a bit like a marrow, a thing called a Christophene. I don't know if you've ever had that yes. in, in, uh, in the Caribbean, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful, yes. And the thing is, so it was always known that British agriculture was uncompetitive. So what happened while all of this produce was coming in from those Commonwealth countries was that British farmers were paid money, uh, direct grants known as deficiency payments, which were basically designed to make up the gap between what they would earn if there wasn't free trade mm. and what they would earn as a result of free trade because right. clearly the commonwealth countries were better at agriculture now and it was joked at the time that this was basically paying them to manu manicure the countryside yeah. and it was also why de gaulle kept saying no every time the uk wanted to join the the European Economic Community. Yeah. And de Gaulle said very bluntly, he said, French and German farmers cannot compete with Australian and New Zealand and Canadian farmers. We just can't. We don't have a chance. And that is still true. And it's Because of the of size, the scale, you mean? Australia and New to a lesser extent New Zealand, but certainly Australia, has what's known in economics as absolute advantage in agriculture. Right. Not all agriculture. My old boss, who was a senator in Australia, who represented a rural constituency, I suppose you would say. He was a senator for New South Wales, but mm. a strong rural background. Before he was elected, he was a large animal vet. And even he made the point, he said, Australia's very good at a lot of agriculture, but it's not going to dominate everything there are going to be some things that will be better from other countries but a lot of agriculture australia has what's known as an absolute advantage and probably the best way to define that in this context is that nobody can compete you have to wall australia out to stop it completely dominating your agricultural sector yeah. that was true in 1973 and it's true now Whereas most of the time, international trade operates on something known as comparative advantage, which is where you might not necessarily be better at producing something than country A or country B, but it's in your interests to specialise in something where you're almost as good as they are and let them specialise in something where they're almost as good as you are. So that's a, a difference. And the European Union has tended to run on comparative advantage, whereas the old imp imperial preferences and deficiency payments worked on the principle of absolute advantage because of the Commonwealth. Now, the com there's two other things going on here as well. The common agricultural policy penalised the consumer. Mm. And it still does. That's why things are more expensive. It also protected farmers in a way which oh, was quite, to. which was, was yeah. What, but I mean, protected them in a way which was actually, I would say, counterintuitive from the economic perspective. In the sense yes, that you know, was. so many people in this country, for example, were paid more money to grow nothing than they mm. were to grow something. Yes, this is uh, this is the problem with uh, something that penalises the consumer because consumer interests and producer interests are always in tension and you cannot always just give one or the other one uh, let them have a complete 
win because you can completely destroy your own industry. Yeah. You can finish up with low standards and you know poor, poor food quality. This can happen. So, but what the common agricultural policy does is because farmers in France and Germany, and this goes back long before the EU, resisted high direct taxation. Mm. What happens with the CAP is it, it slugs the consumer. So you walk into the Ibermarke and you pay more for your goods for, for produce. Yes. Basically, that's what it boils down yeah. to. You do that in France. The deficiency payments didn't penalise the consumer because a huge amount of British history, particularly the history of the Tory party, has been taken up with guaranteeing inexpensive food to the population of the United Kingdom. And indeed, that was what the repeal of the Corn Laws was about in 1846, which famously split the Conservative Party and kept it out of power for 25, or was the Tories then, and kept it out of power for 25 years because agriculture did not like it. Right. But the thing is, the repeal of the Corn Laws benefited 90% of the population, the poorer 90%, at the expense mm. of 10% who had a lot more money. Yeah. Now, the thing is, we've got now, we actually have the phenomenon, and this is why I strongly suspect after this trade deal is signed, if there is proper free trade with Australia and New Zealand and Canada, we are going to have to go back to deficiency payments to farmers um, for the simple reason that you cannot just favour the consumer no. at no, the that's expense true. of the producer. That's true, yes. but equally, funnily enough, I mean, listening to Prime Minister's questions yesterday, Ian Blackford, or Ian Blockford, as I like to call him, because he blocked me from the SNP, was more or less trying to make out that, you know, the, the, the policy from Boris Johnson's government would more or less be a new version of the Highland Clearances and all crofters would be put out of business. I don't think, one, that that's true. Uh, but also, uh, there are people who would say, well, I'm sorry, if you can't run a business at a profit, then what business is it of the governments to subsidise it? Well, this is the very purest and traditional argument in favour of free trade and uh, not subsidising home industries right. of whatever sort yeah. and my personal view is partly because the 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 countryside is very blue so it would be extremely silly for the conservatives to to alienate that quite a significant voter group mm. and also because there is you can use deficiency payments in a way that is very advantageous to the UK and in a way that we did weren't aware of in 1973 where it tended to just be that gap between mm. free trade and the absence of free trade and they were just given block grants whereas now you can use it for things like protecting the environment do you have a problem with badgers killing he hedgehogs yeah. do you have a problem with minks killing water voles are there red kites or ospreys nesting on your property? Mm. Are you interested in real rewilding the reintroduction yes. of beavers? You know, there is a reason why there is the stereotype of the green and pleasant land and the beautiful countryside yes. all across the United Kingdom. You can use, if you're going to reintroduce deficiency payments and have free trade with the Commonwealth, you can use the fact that the Commonwealth does have higher food standards and does have better quality and it's more and it's less expensive, you can use that to achieve an environmental mm. outcome in the UK. You can, but of course what we, also, what we also know about farmers in this country is they're at least environmentally friendly uh, people in the entire world. They're also not particularly friendly people either, uh, and we'd more than happily shoot your dog. Uh, and then give it a warning if it wanders onto their property. But the other well, point... that's a bit mean. I'm a farmer's daughter, and well, like, farmers can yeah, well, be you pretty may, good environmental well, you may, stewards. Well, maybe in <laughs> Australia, but not in this country. I've lived in the countryside, and I can tell you it's a pretty awkward and nasty place to be 
if you live near a farmer because uh, they don't care, they don't give a stuff for anybody who lives in the region. Uh, I lived in a place in a village once in Wiltshire which flooded. The entire village flooded because the farmer had decided unilaterally to uh, to plough a field that had previously been fallow, which previously had horses in it and long grass and all sorts of ways of so- soaking up the, the rainfall. As soon as and he, he pl- created runoff. As soon as he ploughed it, it's he created runoff, runoff, right? And when everybody from the village, including people who had lost businesses, lost stuff, the pub was flooded, everything was done, uh, he just said, it's an act of God. I'm not compensating any of you. Get lost. Talk to your insurance company. That would have led to some litigation, actually, and some well, quite unusual damages being paid out yeah. in those circumstances. No, exactly that right. Can. Exactly right. But the thing that I find extraordinary as well is this kind of body of, of the public who mostly don't understand farming or uh, anything about food claim that we're going to now suddenly be uh, in, inundated with, with horrible, ghastly meat products. No, that's, terrible. that's absolutely, that is absolutely not true. Yeah, well, let's nail I mean, that one you, once and for all, because one, yeah, it's not happening. No, the, uh, it's I mean, not coming inter- from America and it's not going to come from Australia. Well, I I can't speak for the United States for the simple reason that the US agricultural sector is solid, but it's not got the level of absolute advantage that Australia's does. No, the Australian one, the Australian agricultural sector, it enjoys absolute advantage because of favourable climatic conditions and and what is often called factor endowments by economists, you know, good soils or Mm. good rainfall or the right sort of crops or cattle or that kind of thing. These are known as factor endowments. And Australia has greater factor endowments than the US. What that means is that you will not get better beef than Australian beef. Mm. You will not get better lamb than New Zealand lamb. You will not get better fruits and vegetables unless you're getting them perhaps from another Commonwealth country, maybe Jamaica, maybe Trinidad, maybe South Africa. I mean, I would so, say this, Helen. So that's because, just a non-issue. It really is. Yes, it but, might but, but be that's, an issue but, with but, the US, but, but that, not well, that, with Australia. Yeah, but I mean, that would be the case if we're talking about you know mass-produced or, or or mass-imported amounts of food. I mean, there's certainly it's certainly true to say that if you were to cross the road here from my office, go to Borough Market, you will find some fantastic butchers there um, who sell you probably the finest beef and lamb in the world, but it's not mm. cheap. It's very expensive. No. You know, I bought um, a crown roast once for um, for a Christmas dinner, and it was seventy five quid. You know, yes, and not everybody's buying it's like that a kind goose of food before Christmas. Like yeah. eating a goose before right. Christmas, they're very expensive. Right, but if you're an and average family, but if you're yeah. an average family and you're looking to buy a chicken, you know, for Sunday uh, roast or something like that. Um, you know, you can buy a free-range one, which is going to taste better than the the, the, the bog-standard sort of four-quid chicken. The boiler, but, yes. Yeah, but, <laughs> I mean, the four-quid chicken isn't terrible. And so what I'm saying is, is that, you know, what you're going to be importing from Australia and America is certainly not going to be any worse than that. Oh, gosh, no. No, and uh, once again, disaggregating Australia and the United States because Australian agriculture is very different. Mm. I might make a couple of other little points here, not only about the the quality of the food. I mean, a a friend of mine who's a chef just describes Australia as the world's worst place to start a diet because (laughs) Australian food is so delicious. It's just of really high standard. Uh, But the other thing is because of its size, you know, it's just basically there's lots of real estate in Australia. There There are properties known as stations, cattle stations, in Australia that are larger than the whole of England. Mm, I'm sure. Okay, so but so what you don't get in Australia is this problem that is persistent throughout Europe and can lead to really serious animal welfare issues. You don't get the rates of intensive farming. In fact, I, I the last time I looked at this in any detail, there actually wasn't any intensive farming in Australia now. Intensive intensive farming is what you associate with poor animal welfare, animals being kept in 
in cramped and unhygienic conditions and uh, you know sort of all the classic stereotypes of oh the dirty farm i mean that was what my father used to call it now we were we were we were agriculture we grew mm. sugar cane in my family but there was always the story of the dirty farmer yeah. who didn't who in this case was looking after was uh, dealing with cattle sheep or something like that who didn't have good animal welfare standards and that was a negative thing in australia so you don't have this issue of intensive farming the same way that you do and it's purely a matter of geography it's factor endowments again australia is a geographically large country with lots of arable land and so it means it's easier to run tens of thousands of head of cattle and sheep in 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 the country in a way that you just can't mm. here or you can't in no. germany or you can't no, in france of of course. Let's just finish up, Helen, because we're nearly out of time. I just want to get a quick word with you about the old uh, Google story. I don't know whether oh, you gosh, saw, yes, I you know. saw that. It was hilarious. Now, there's a there's a thing. I heard about this before because there's a thing called Slack, which I'm not familiar with, I think. But it's a sort of internal, um, almost WhatsApp-type messaging service. It's a chat yeah, program that which, people use within companies. Yes. It's supposed to be very secure. That's, the That's right. Play. Now, I was told about several, I would say several months ago, that they started doing this, where if you typed the word chairman, it gave you a couple of options or said, would you like to do this? Mm. Um, I was going to say to you, I had one of these experiences the other week. I think it was at the weekend, actually. And I was being, I was just having a bit of a, not not really a row with anyone on Twitter, but this guy was being particularly idiotic. And I and I, I think I said something like, you know, well, you'd have to have been born an idiot to think that or something. And as I wrote the word idiot, this warning came up and said, do you wish to um, uh, review your tweet before you send it? Now, I mean, I've said many things on Twitter which are worse than idiot, but they've never asked me to review it. I don't know whether it's new policy or whether it's uh, that particular word that's a problem. But, you know, um, what's going on? It's an attempt to get people to moderate their speech. Mm. And it's been going on for quite a long time. I'm sure we've all had the experience. Please, producer, don't launch yourself at the big Ofcom red button when I say this. Well, he might do if you know a- if you have a particular word, if you use a particular word and you find that WhatsApp or Twitter turns it into ducking. Mm. Now, unless you are, are an historian of the early modern period with a focus on the witch trials, you do not want to use the word ducking. Not very often. You wish to, no, you wish to use another word, a rude word, yes. which I'm not going to say. Thank and God. so it tries to give you it tries to give you advice and tell you, no, you don't want to use this rude word. Mm. Now, this is been happening to swear words for as long as I've I can remember using social media I have to say so it's probably a decade I don't know whether it's that long but it feels like a long time this is just another version of that and it's a version of predictive text but it's also the idea that uh, other people get to put words in your mouth Mm. or choose tell you how to speak or to police your speech and Maybe it's valuable for some people if they're bad at spelling or they swear a lot or or are at risk of, of saying something very rude. Yes. But by the same token, there is a part of me, I'm sitting here going, I've been a professional writer for 25 well, exactly. years. And those of us I who will have... Choose my, I will choose my words, mm. thank you. Very much so. And that's very much what I said yesterday when we talked about this, because, you know, I know about words. I've used words all my life. I've made a living out of words, either words, writing them yes. or speaking them. And I really don't need some, you know, bearded wonk, for want of a better phrase, in California telling me what I can and can't say. 
Thanks. On the other thing they do is they try to make everybody spell using American spelling. Yes. That's the other thing I've noticed. And it's yeah. the same thing. It's just infuriating. Mm. It's an attempt to pretend that everybody li everybody lives in Silicon Valley and has Silicon Valley, Valley values and mores. Yes. And it's very irritating because there are other varieties of English in the world that do have different traditions and different uses of language mm. i mean there was a period there on twitter where just about every single scottish or australian friend that i had was continually getting suspended yeah and they were getting suspended for banter right. i had friends of mine get suspended because they're scottish friends because they used a swear word at me and they're my friends yes. they're people when i go up to scotland i, I go, right. go to the pub with well exactly and that's the whole point of what social media is supposed to be about is that you're supposed to be able to be social helen got to run because we're late but thank you very much indeed helen dale writer lawyer political commentator uh, giving us the lowdown on how great australian food is don't listen to these guardian reading uh, idiots who are going to tell you oh no it's all going to be a nightmare we're going to get this terrible food imported like i said cjd didn't come from australia and it didn't come from uh, america either it was home raised and born grass-fed even possibly uh, or spine-fed depending on which way you want to look at it the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio now lance form is a man we speak to on regular occasions here at the independent republic he's a very sound individual he's run a business uh, of his own very successfully for many years uh, he was uh, for a time a brexit party and then a tory party uh, mep and an independent i think as well um but he's very concerned, as I think all of us should be, about the way that some people are behaving at the moment as a result of what's going on in the Gaza Strip, as a result of what's going on uh, between Israel and Palestine in the Middle East. Lance, a very good afternoon to you. Uh, good afternoon. And uh, I, I am, uh, rightly say, uh, Mike, very concerned. Mm. This is, for me personally, this is very close to home. Yeah. You know, my, my dad came here um, as a Holocaust survivor, came to Britain. My, my great granddad, who started our smoked salmon business back in 1905, came over at the end of the 19th century, fleeing the pogroms of uh, Russia. Mm. And, you know, people just say, oh, this could never happen again. We're in the 21st century. Germany was a very cultured country. You know, they, they were very cultured people in the, uh, you know, in the uh, 20th century. Mm. And yet, they became like animals mm. and it doesn't take much to turn people. And I do feel today, you know, people, a lot of people say that, you know, Israel is the cause of anti-Semitism. They've got it completely the wrong way around. Anti-Semitism is the cause of Israel hatred. That is the problem. Anti-Semitism has been going on for 2000 years. It's not a new thing. You know, long before Israel, sort of the, the modern Israel came into being, and, and the two things that I often put to people are, are, first of all, I say to them, you know, this is basically a land dispute between Jews and Arabs. Yeah. There are 200, more than 200 other land disputes going on all over the world with more deaths, more people being displaced. You know, 10 to 20 million people were displaced in India at the same time as half a million in Palestine. Yeah. Why are you just talking about Israel? Why are you not talking about all these other um, the, these other land disputes? And at the same time as that half a million Arabs left um, what became Israel, in 1948, 600,000 Jews were thrown out of Arab lands. Their land was stolen. They were ethnically cleansed. Mm. Why are you never talking about those? So, you know, I feel that there's a, there's a huge double standard here. And I think... 
Part of it is due to anti-Semitism yeah. and part of it is due to ignorance. And the reason I say that, Mike, is because I'll give you a very good example. Um, a few years ago, in, in the last uh, Gaza crisis in 2014, my own building was graffitied and sprayed with the words free Gaza. Yeah, I remember. And I thought that, that may, maybe I was being targeted. And I called the police round to say, you know, explain what had happened. And you know what the policeman said to me? She said, what is Gaza? She didn't even know. And that is the problem. There is so much false information and people don't understand the issues. And there are some very, you know, they keep talking about illegal settlements. As it happens, there has only ever been one international law that defines the boundaries of Israel. Mm. And that was in 1922. It was passed by the entire world through the League of Nations. And that defined the, the boundaries of Israel and actually included all of what we now call the West Bank and Gaza. Yeah. Not that Israel wants that, but those are the boundaries. And, and in that same agreement, it also defined the boundaries of Iraq, of Jordan, of Lebanon, of Syria. If Israel's boundaries aren't valid, none of those boundaries yeah. are valid. It was the same agreement. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? And, and ignorance is often the biggest enemy, um, of uh, obviously, of truth. But, you know, it comes very close to home for me as well, because when I saw those cars driving on Finchley Road, you know, I grew up not a million miles from Finchley Road. I grew up in North London. I grew up in Hampstead, just off Platts Lane, very close to Golders Green. A lot of my friends were Jewish. Um, a lot of my, um, my, my, even though I was, I was raised as a Catholic, I went to work in a shop in, in Hampstead. We used to go to restaurants. You know, there was a very large Jewish clientele. I went to live in New York for 10 years. Loads of my friends were Jewish. But when you see that kind of hatred in London, in a place where people who are Jewish live. I mean, um, Rob Rinder put out a tweet because I think he was out of his house. He was literally watching it going on yeah. outside his window. And, he, and and you're right. I mean, this is this is not very far away from somebody knocking your door and firebombing it. It, it is, you know, for, for Jewish people, um, and there's not many of us, you know, a quarter of a million Jewish people in, uh, in the UK, mm. it is very scary. And I've seen... You know, people are saying they're afraid to go out wearing a skull cap, yeah. wearing a, a Star of David. They, they don't want to be seen um, because they, they're afraid of being attacked. Yeah. This is not just happening in London. This is happening all over the world now. Yeah. And it's because we haven't stood up for what is correct. And as I say, some of it sounds ignorance, but... You know, you, are you familiar with the um, the, the Muslim uh, journalist, uh, Mehdi, um, Mehdi Hassan? I am, unfortunately, well yeah. Not one, of, not one of my favourite people, I have to say. Yeah. In 2013, he, he described anti-Semitism in the Muslim community in the UK as our dirty little secret. You know... There is, and I'm not saying, absolutely not saying every Muslim is anti-Semitic, absolutely no way. Take um, on another London-based radio station, uh, Majid Nawaz. Yeah. He is, he is, you know, he's enlightened. He actually, he was, he was pr imprisoned with Hamas. I was going to say, I mean, he's, enli he's enlightened now. He wasn't always he's, enlightened. He's enlightened. And, and also, Mike, we all know, you know, in, in recent months, Israel formed a peace agreement with the United Arab Emirates mm. and with Bahrain. It's been amazing to watch the leaders of those countries and people in those countries on social media in the last six months. They were saying, you know, we're so glad to have this peace with Israel now. We've been, you know, we didn't even know about the Holocaust. They've been told lies about Jews mm. for decades, decades upon decades. And now they're traveling to Israel. They're meeting Israelis. They're building great relations. You know, there has been there have been so many lies over the years. 
and and the the Arabs that lived in Palestine, you know, right from the start, you know, in the 1930s, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, he was meeting Hitler in Berlin, working out how he was going to do the genocide of the Jews in Palestine. Yeah. You know, this is not something new. And so when they say it's all about the settlements, this is just nonsense. Of course it is. You know, the, the settlements didn't exist and no. they were trying to kill us. No, it's, so, po- it's poison. It's poison. It's, Lance, let's call it for what it is. It's poison, it's hatred, uh, it's it discriminatory, uh, and it's and it's got no place in any country in the world, certainly not in this country. But let's face it, you know, you talk about the police not knowing anything about Gaza. They've changed all that, haven't they? Because now they're recruiting people who actually start, start shouting free Palestine uh, at a bloody uh, march for Palestine. That, 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 that really was outrageous. And, uh, you know, when you're What's that all in about? uniform, you, you have to be uh, totally impartial. And you know what, Mike? I don't say sack her, but what I would say No, no, is, I don't either. You know, no, what I would say is, you know, in the same way as if you're speeding for the first time, they put you on a course. She should go on a course. I would like to I would like to spend a day with that policeman yeah. and teaching her the real history of what's gone on there. Yeah. Because when people understand it and people understand the Jewish people are indigenous to that land. They are indigenous to that land. It was their kingdom mm. 2000 years ago. It doesn't mean they can come and take it. Doesn't mean they can kick people out of their homes. They shouldn't be doing that. But that is their homeland. And when they've been persecuted for 2,000 years all over the world, people say, go home, go home. Where should they go? That was their home. <laughs> well, exactly. Maybe and, and, maybe what you could do is take her, Lance, to uh, those areas of, of, of Western Israel uh, where the rockets fall every single day, week in, week out, day in, day out, before any of this was going on. It's, you know, and, and, and people say, oh, look at the poor Palestinians. You know, in Gaza, they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars on over, well, I think it's coming up to 4,000 rockets. These are not cheap. These rockets that they literally lob into metropolitan civilian areas in Israel. Um, They have built, you know, you might have heard the phrase, the terror tunnels. Okay. These tunnels that they built... We're not talking about a little tunnel under your garden. I've also this watched. Is like I've also the watched. Tube I know. I've Eric, also. I've also watched Fowder, Lance, which is a great show. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah, Absolutely great, incredible, it? right? But but yeah. But I mean, I remember stories as well uh, where they're bringing things into uh, through these tunnels, including wild animals. I think there was a story a few years ago where they brought a lion in. You know, they bring food in. They bring all sorts of stuff in. You know, they are only. Um, I, I would say as deprived as Hamas wishes them to be. There are 300 miles of tunnels, 300 miles of tunnels where they stash all their their arms, their their military hide. And those tunnels are used to tunnel into Israel so they can attack just innocent civilians. So what's been going on is that Israel, the uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, has been targeting and bombing, bunker bombing these tunnels so the tunnels collapse. And what's happened is that because they've tunneled under people's homes, those homes have collapsed into rubble, mm. you know, as the tunnels collapse. Right. Now, you know, when they complain, oh, we don't have enough money for COVID vaccines. Well, if you didn't spend hundreds of millions on tunnels to attack Israel right. and billions of, you know, dollars on rockets, mm. you could have the most thriving, beautiful economy. It could be the Singapore, the Middle East, Gaza. That's how it was left. Yeah. 8,000 Jews were evicted from their homes when Israel handed over, you know, Gaza to, to the Palestinians, because Gaza 
said, we don't want Jews living here. Yeah. And they call us the apartheid state. I know. You know. They call Israel the apartheid state. They are the ones that want their country to be free of Jews. I mean, this is, you know, this is the hypocrisy of what's going on. Yeah. It's just outrageous. And, and, also, he- and also, if it was even to be considered, and I know this sounds ridiculous as you and I are talking about it, if it was to be considered as a, as a land dispute, what's it going to do with Lance Foreman and his company of uh, smoked salmon makers in East London? What's it got to do uh, with the Jewish community in Golders Green? You know, why are they talking to them? Exactly. This, let's say, this, is, this is a land dispute. But, you know, for, for Hamas, the, the, the terror organisation, you know, and it's not me saying that, they are an internationally prescribed terror organisation that runs and controls Gaza. Can you imagine? I mean, they're, they're the same as ISIS. You know, that's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about a normal country or, you know, people that are quite aggressive. They are like ISIS. Can you imagine if we had on the border of the UK, you know, instead of instead of it being France, it was ISIS on our border mm. and they were lobbing three or four thousand rockets into London and Liverpool and Birmingham mm. every night. Would, would the people here be saying, oh, you know, we should sit down and talk with them and let's, you know, we wouldn't. We'd be defending not. ourselves and we'd be trying to demilitarize them and actually make sure that yeah. our people are safe. And that is the that is the responsibility of any government. Israel has, even before its existence, always wanted to share that land. In in 1937, there was something called the Peel Commission, which offered literally it offered Israel only 20% of the land they're in. You know what? Israel accepted it. Mm. The Arabs said, no, we want it all. Yeah. In 1948, when Israel was formed by, in a, by the United Nations, the United Nations had a partition plan. They said Israel can have 55% and the Arabs 45%. Again, Israel said yes. The Arabs said no. Even recently, the, the, the Israeli prime minister um, offered them 99% of the land that they said they wanted. And they said no, mm. because... It's not about the land. They just don't want Israel there at all. Right. They just do not want the Jews in. in and, they, and, they, and they make no secret of the, of the fact that they wish Israel did not exist and they would like to do whatever they can do to make it disappear. It's in their charter, you know, yeah. and, and, and not just and not just Israel, Mike. Their charter actually says Jews. Mm. They, you know, they, it talks about killing Jews all over the world. They don't want Jews to exist. Yeah. It's not just about Israel. And, and, and this is what people, I don't know, Say either people are willfully blind or they're just ignorant. It's got you know it's one or the other. Yeah. It can't be anything else. And if they're ignorant, you know, fair enough. You know, I'm not interested in every single political dispute that goes on around the world. Right. This one's obviously very close to home. Fair enough, but let's educate people. Yeah, you know, let's but let's not also, but let's this, also let's not have this um this proportion. You know, we keep hearing on the media. I find it very frustrating. They say, oh, today this number of gardens have died. This number of Israelis yeah. died. You know, if you take that back to World War Two, and, and you look at civilian deaths, in the UK, we lost 70,000 people. Mm. Germany lost 3.3 million people. Mm. So should we say, oh, well, Britain should have lost another 3 million to have made it fair? Yeah. It's just nonsense. Right. I know, it really is. But also, the thing that worries me, Lance, is that we have institutionally... Um, sort of aided and abetted this kind of behaviour as well to some extent. There was a rabbi beaten up in Essex over the weekend. You know, I get reports all the time from communities up in the north of England where there's a kind of a two-tier town. You know, there's a Muslim community um, in which there are some very fine people, but in which there are also uh, some very fundamentalist people 
um, who are kind of aided and abetted by the local councils. The police don't go anywhere near them. I've, I'm told there are people that drive around waving ISIS flags at times. And, you know, somebody's got to get to grips with this. It's, it's, it's difficult, Mike. You know, I, I've actually spoken to a, an MP. Uh, I, I'm not going to name any names, but I spoke to an MP and I was talking about this Israel-Palestine situation. This is not recently. This is a previous uh, instance. And, and he was very pro and agreed with everything I was saying. I said, well, why can't you be more vocal about this? Why don't you say this? Mm. He said, well, it's difficult because I've got a large Muslim constituency. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. You know, this is this is this is a real problem. You know, but even even if your average man in the street, you know, if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't anti-Semitism, and it is because they love and they feel the that the Palestinians have had this injustice, you know, how is it? How is it? Just in in the Syrian war, just recently, more Palestinians, many more, by a factor of I think about five or more. Palestinians have died at the hands of the Syrians in in the last few years than have died in all the battles with Israel since mm. 1948. Right. But you haven't seen one of them go marching saying the Palestinians are being killed. It's only if there's a battle with Israel. And even last night, last night, 16 Palestinians in Gaza died, eight of them children, absolutely tragic, killed by their own rocket. It landed short, it killed their own... Where's the outrage at Hamas mm. killing its own people? Yeah. It's only when it's Israelis, they go crazy. And, right. and for me, there's something very deep and very troubling about this. Yes. Lance, listen, great to talk to you. We've got to run, unfortunately, but thank you so much for setting out that particular stall with a lot of facts and an awful lot of opinions as well, which he is entitled, of course, to have, uh, but which needs to be put out there because not enough media organisations do it. They just go, oh, Israel's bad. The Palestinians are all underprivileged and poor, so they must be good. Well, it ain't that simple, ladies and gentlemen. And if it starts to unfold in this country, where people think that it's okay to drive around in the streets threatening people because they happen to be of a particular faith, i.e. Jewish, that has to be absolutely and utterly clamped down on, and it has to be clamped down on straight away, as does that idiotic policewoman who thought it was a great idea uh, to hug some Palestinian protesters uh, and to shout, Free Palestine absolute nonsense talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.